about ADD after being on the medication. I didn't know what it was. All I knew was for school. And then when I got here and I was like, holy shit, everybody takes Adderall. Everyone. I take it right when I wake up. It takes about 40 minutes to kick in and you can feel it. I start to sweat. My heart accelerates. My handwriting got neater. I thought that was so cool. My mind came alive. My body felt alive. It works like a bang. Adderall, warning. Side effects may include being awesome at everything. Every generation has found a different way to try to enhance their performance. Now, in this case, it has been ADHD drugs. This ain't new. It's not like a glass of wine or a joint or any way that people use to decompress. I really see it as a supplement, as a tool. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So then you're primed that a pill is going to give me what I want. I felt this like mounting pressure from work to start using my prescription. And that says something about our culture right now. It makes me kind of depressed. <laughs> we probably have meds for that. Everyone has a little ADD. No, we have distractions, but not everyone has a brain that functions like somebody's with ADHD. I wouldn't say that I'm happy to have Adderall, but I'm happy that Adderall is an option for you. There are cardiovascular risks, psychotic episode. You, you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy. I've got everything I wanted, and there's no way any of that would have been possible without the medication. The perfect employee is somebody that doesn't say no. There is a culture of you do stay up 16 hours for seven days straight. I've had a seizure from exhaustion. You want to be beautiful and you want to have amazing grades and Adderall just sort of sews it all up for you. Adderall, the drug of our time. This focus on material progress and productivity, what's the cost of that? And is that a cost we're willing to live with? Hi, I'm Dr. Steve Hinshaw. I'm Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. And I do work in developmental psychopathology and ADHD and clinical trials and stigma reduction and parents and genes and brains and families and schools, uh, and I'm really pleased to be on Bite Size Therapy. Welcome to Bite Size Therapy Podcast with Dr. Brian Rosino. Dr. Brian Rosino has over 20 years of experience as a talk therapist, and he uses short videos dealing with mental health issues in order to connect and educate hundreds of thousands of people. On this show, Dr. Rosino will make reference to his short clip videos and do his best to explain the mental issue reference and how it can be addressed. Dr. Rosino does not give medical advice, but hopes that he can help people understand what is going on mentally in order to go ask for clarification with their own personal mental health professional. Dr. Steve Hinshaw, thank you for coming on Bite Size Therapy with Dr. Rosino. Dr. Hinshaw, it is, uh, it, it's a pleasure to meet you. And I, 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 uh, I have just, uh, I'm an admirer of your work and so many things to talk with you about. I was very struck by your discussion and, and, and your book on uh, life with your own father and, you know, history of your family. I relate completely to that, uh, not with my own father, but siblings. And certainly early family constellation is what got me into practicing psychology. I think that's probably true for a lot of us. But your work on ADHD. Now, I'm curious, Do you, the video that we saw on Netflix was, was one about Adderall. It was, it was more of a cautionary tale, it seemed to me. I wanted to ask you a couple things. First of all, what did you think of the movie once you saw it? So I was uh, filmed for the movie and made comments in it. I've never seen the whole thing all at once. I've okay. seen segments of it. Yeah. And so, but it, to me, exemplifies a lot of the controversy about ADHD and about medication treatment uh, in this era of, we know now that around the world, unless you live in a subsistence country that doesn't have compulsory education, pretty much every country on earth has a remarkably similar prevalence of kids and adolescents with ADHD, about 5 to 6%. The United States has doubled that number. It's at about 12%, even higher in some parts of the U.S. 
Israel's really high too, super high achieving countries. And in a 2014 book I wrote with Richard Scheffler, a health economist at Berkeley called The ADHD Explosion, right. we examined this trend. And, you know, I could spend an hour talking about it, but to cut to the chase, number one, we've got professional groups that have really well-published guidelines on how you diagnose ADHD. You don't do it in 15 minutes in a pediatrician's office or a general practitioner's office. You need a sound developmental history. You need rating scales with norms from parents and teachers. You need testing. You need to look for comorbid conditions, anxiety, depression, conduct problems. But the average is a non-specialist pediatrician or non-specialist general practitioner makes that diagnosis in 12 or 15 minutes. And such doctors are not trained in parent training or family therapy. So what they've got at their disposal is a prescription pad. So the United States can, continues to be at the top of ADHD diagnosis and medication treatment. ADHD is real. It exists in boys and girls, men and women but it's easy to overdiagnose. You can also underdiagnose it in girls too. It's also in our country, we say that if you're above preschool, medication's the number one treatment choice. Most of the rest of the world says for kids of any age, you should really give psychological and behavioral treatments a good crack first, add medication as needed. And the research around the world says the best results on average especially if your goal is not just to reduce inattention or reduce fidgeting behavior, if your goal is to improve academics, peer relationship, social skills, parenting, it's the combination of the lowest possible dose of an evidence-based medicine with parent management, social skills, consultation with teachers. It's really the multimodal treatments that give the most, the most chance of success for not only the symptoms, but the impairments. So we're in the era of controversy. Is ADHD real? Is it overdiagnosed? Do girls really have ADHD? And uh, take your pills and a lot of other media material on ADHD tends to get polarized. Medicines are poisons. Uh, we, we shouldn't medicate for behavior control. Well, remember cancer back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s was such a stigmatized illness. We thought it was a psychosomatic illness where you'd lost a will to live, you kind of gave up and those cancerous cells took over and, and built tumors. Today, cancer is a cause. Mental disorders, depression, bipolar disorder, neurodevelopmental disorders like ADHD. Well, we know it's because of bad parenting or the kid just doesn't try hard enough and medications and evil. Mental health in terms of stigma and ridicule is like cancer 75 years ago. And one of my goals is to not only study and treat kids with mental and neurodevelopmental disorders, but look at this whole issue and you raise another kind of madness. My 2017 memoir about my family's pretty horrific experiences with mental illness, including professionals telling my dad when I was little and he would vanish from the home for three, six or 12 months at a time, didn't know if he's alive or dead. His lead doctor, <coughs> looked him in the face over at Ohio State University, where I grew up in Columbus, and said, Professor Hinshaw, my dad was a philosopher, if your children ever learn of what they thought was schizophrenia, it was misdiagnosed for 40 years, and your hospitalizations, they'll be permanently destroyed. You and your wife are forbidden from ever mentioning the topic. Doctor's orders were, keep it silent. It's lethal. What, what if an oncologist told a mom or dad, um, Never tell your children about your cancer. It will destroy them. Well, we'd sue the doctor for malpractice. So we've got, we've learned a lot in ADHD, depression, bipolar disorder, PTSD, autism, spectrum disorders, but we still don't get the best evidence-based treatments out to the people who need them. And there's still a lot of shame and stigma. So do you think that that is one of the major forces behind a lack of funding for resources? I mean, when we talk about pediatricians, being that one of the main gatekeepers around Adderall and, and services, I mean, it's that seems to be true for psychiatry in a lot of respects too. Right. Where they're sort of like I, I call it, they're like a mash unit. You know, I mean, they they're getting people coming in, coming in, coming. In. They can't keep up with them. That's right. And so they're relegated to, you know, there's a few people out there trying to make a make a 
you know, a buck or whatever, but they're relegated to 15, 20 minute increments. That's right. And where does that begin? Not a fair question, but is it the stigma? I mean, is it, is it, or is it, are we talking about some turf wars with the AMA? AMA and <laughs> so I think, you know, it's hard to find out what the root cause of anything. Cause then you go back to uh, physics, <laughs> DNA and molecular, everything's built of quarks. But I think stigma is a huge issue. Stigma is a terrible term. It comes from the ancient Greek and Latin languages, meaning the brands, the burn marks you put in on the skin of somebody who's devalued, right? Most stigma today is psychological. We don't brand people, although Hitler branded people in the camps, tattoos on their wrists with numbers. Many HIV positive individuals were branded in many countries in the 80s, keep away. Stigma means shame, you're devalued, you're not fully human. And because of the brains being the most complicated thing we know of in the known universe with trillions of synapses, little wonder that we don't know as much about how the brain and mind work well or don't work so well compared to the liver or heart, which are an eye, which are complicated enough in themselves. And a lot of behaviors associated with mental and neurodevelopmental disorders can be threatening. The person's hearing voices. The kid's not in control in the classroom. This person was depressed yesterday and manic and breaking their credit line this week. When behavior is inexplicable, when it's threatening to our own sense of well-being, we perceive danger, we tend to push that person aside. And we tend to push that group aside. If you go to medical school, is the most favored residency psychiatry? No, it'd be neurosurgery, it'd be oncology, it'd be cardiology, because there's still an aura of mystery and a sense of permanence and incompetence. What's the main media image of mental illness today? School shooters, hmm. people who don't smell very good uh, and grunt uh, under freeway overpasses in major warm weather cities, homeless individuals. The three most stigmatized attributes you can have in our country today are, do you have a mental disorder? Do you use substances, you have substance use disorder and or are you homeless? And often these can go together in the most chronic cases. So uh, it's conveyed in training. Uh, there's an old acronym uh, called GOMER. Get out of my emergency room. We treat people who've been shot or who've been in a car accident we don't treat people who are hearing voices or put drugs in their system. So it's shameful. You don't even deserve to be a patient or a human to go to an emergency room if you're suffering from a mental disorder. So I think it's pretty deep and systemic. It's almost like a Protestant work ethic kind of pulling right. yourself off by your own steps right. and you're on your own and you know that sort of thing. And it's 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 so insidious in terms of our thinking. Hey guys, if you break your arm, insurance will pay yeah. for it. Okay, simple, no problem. You got a problem above the neck, and where's the money coming from? That's right. right? I Number mean, dollar two, per dollar, person per person, per capita, National Cancer Institute has a lot more funding than the National Institute for Mental Health. Mm -hmm. If, if it, you have a relapse of your cancer, people send flowers to the hospital. If you have a relapse of your depression, everybody's hush-hush about it. So it's it's a financial thing. Do we really have a health insurance system in our country? It's scattered if we do. Do we value, even though parity is now on the books <clears throat> federally and in most states, you've got to provide the same coverage for your mental as your physical condition. There's loopholes big enough to drive a semi through. There's not the same inpatient coverage. Uh, there's loopholes because we still don't believe it's real. It must be some personal flaw, or as we used to think, you've been possessed by evil spirits or animal spirits. But it was real enough in the 60s when you had 600,000 mental health beds, and now you have less than 10% today. It, it, it's been cut by 95%. We well, closed the hospitals down, but where do people go? They didn't fill it that I mean, it seems like that was the whole community mental health movement right. that didn't have follow through. Something, it, it was like they shut down the, they got, they didn't want it centralized. They wanted to give it away into the community and teach right. higher professionals. But what happened? My dad, Professor Virgil Hinshaw Jr., a philosopher who studied in grad school with Albert Einstein and Bertrand Russell, 
had horrible episodes of mania and depression his whole life. They thought it was schizophrenia, is misdiagnosed. He ended up in some of the country's worst mental hospitals. They were snake pits. Yeah. At Philadelphia State Hospital in the 40s, um, where he spent six months and was beaten up by fellow patients and staff and um, conscientious objectors would be placed there during the Second World War instead of going to fight overseas, smuggled out photographs of the shallow graves and the beatings and starvation. The closest thing we had to a concentration camp in the United States was Byberry State Hospital before they closed it down. So community mental health, normalization movement from Scandinavia, let's get people treated in their local towns rather than sent off to the big warehouse in the center of the state. And it was a great idea, except funding of community care, job training, continuing education, getting services coordinated across education and public health and the welfare system is easier said than done. It requires preventive funding. And what is the real sad legacy of the community mental health movement is it did get into the community's treatment for people with you know, ambulatory depression and middle-class people. The people with the most severe forms of mental illness, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, severe PTSD, were kind of left out because there was no good hospitals for them to go to. And if you're 18 or over, unless you're really gravely disabled or an imminent threat to yourself or others, you can't get involuntarily committed. So this is part of the homeless problem. This is part of the problem of the most severely mentally ill people in our country still are at the bottom of the barrel for the service provision that's needed. Well, they go to jail. Or they go to, yeah, the biggest mental hospital in the country is LA County Jail, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Are there countries that are a good model for this? Or is that still just uh, way off? So there are countries that don't have the same density of population as the United States that have, you know, more per capita income, many Scandinavian countries where there is more tolerance toward, quote, deviant behavior and where the idea, the original normalization movement came out of Scandinavia, let's have the environments and where, pe where people recover as close as possible to regular everyday environments, supervised apartments, having a mentor in the workplace. New Zealand, um, uh, very interesting country. The uh, great athlete from New Zealand, Sir John Kerwin, the um, LeBron James of rugby over there, um, who I've gotten to know, has started a group called Groove, G-R-O-O-V. John was the world's greatest rugby player, and later in his career, he faced a problem uh, at a hotel in South America on a rugby tour of whether to jump off the balcony of the top floor. Always wondered why he felt depressed and such low self-worth his whole life. For the second half of his career, he's dedicated to opening up about mental illness and about changing the workplace. It's okay to disclose you're having stress in your life. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Managers, leaders, CEOs, gyms in the workplace, flexible schedules so you can see your shrink, see your doctor, uh, as, as well as, uh, you know, not just punch the nine to five clock. And if we excluded everybody with depression or PTSD or ADHD from the workplace, we would have no workforce left. These are not rare disorders, right? But we pretend that they're rare and they're untreatable. We don't have cures yet, but most people can get into recovery, if you will, yeah. with medications as needed, with supportive therapy, with support groups from like-minded people. But we tend to put our head in the sand and say you're either ill or you're well, when we know that depression is on a spectrum. And it, it, we call it, it, the autism spectrum disorders these days. There isn't as much difference between me, the well person, and you, the sick person, as most people would like to believe. And it, it, and it, it holds back our – it keeps us from understanding it as best as, as well as we could too, right? Because right, you've, got, right. you've got people that are afraid to come forward or they're not fully transparent or they're not honest about it. We really don't – we have a limited – we have a snapshot of what these disorders look like and who they right. affect. 
but we really don't have a full understanding of, of, of that. Right. And, and, and if we were open, if we were to open things up a bit more and, and you know, uh, expose it to the light of day, so to speak, right. we might, you know, we might have a better job of actually addressing it too, right? So that's kind Definitely. of like, that's tragic. And, and, and it's it, not the brain or behavior, it's the body and mind put together. It's, we know that people who have lower income are at risk for most of the neurodevelopmental and mental disorders because of the uh, long-term consequences of poverty and crowded neighborhoods and violent neighborhoods and literally toxic environments growing up. And most of the severe mental illnesses have a pretty substantial genetic underpinning too. These conditions run in families. It's both and not either or. We can't be reductionist. Yeah. yeah integrate our views of causes and integrate our views of treatments. Dr. Henshaw, what, what role has sleep played in the last 20 or so years? I've seen a lot of reports where kids are sleeping two hours less. Is that playing a role into this? It, it just has to be. So at UC Berkeley, I have two eminent psychology colleagues, Dr. Allison Harvey and Dr. Matt Walker, who are both international sleep experts. And I'm very interested in kids and adolescents. And of course, they're going to be young adults and we do longitudinal studies. The lack of sleep of teens in affluent the United States today is shocking. On average, kids get three hours fewer of sleep a night than they need. They need nine and they get six if they're lucky. Mm -hmm. Social media, homework, extracurriculars, same amount of admission slots for the best colleges, three times as many applicants. It's a crisis. And uh, if you read Matt Walker's Why We Sleep and other uh, he wrote that book about five years ago and, and other works of his sleep is crucial for longevity. It's crucial for disease prevention. It's crucial for memory. It's crucial for emotion regulation. And it's still the third of our life, or it should be a third of our life, but it isn't for too many kids. It's a third of our life that we know the least about yet, but evolution wouldn't have made mammals sleep unless there was some pretty darn good reason for a good night's sleep. Yeah. Could you spitball a number? What if 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 the kids were getting enough sleep? What would be the uh, the decrease in rates of ADHD? You think? So it's hard to know for ADHD because even though many kids with ADHD have sleep problems, if you study their brains at night with a sleep study in the sleep lab, their sleep doesn't look all that different from a neurotypical kid. Um other disorders, bipolar and depression, you get some real differences in sleep. It's just that either the inattention and the need to study more or the impulsivity and hyperactivity, you're getting less sleep. I think it's a matter of quantity. For quality of sleep and quantity, many other mental disorders. So for depression, I would total spitballing. If we could really improve sleep, sleep hygiene, we would cut rates of major depression by a quarter. I would, I would think it's, you know, don't quote me on that now that I've just gone, gone out <laughs> of a limb. But, but it's also about diet and exercise. We know that physical activity, yeah. Yeah. a slew of studies now, physical aerobic exercise isn't going to cure ADHD in our country or the world. But if you get 20 to 30 minutes of regular aerobic exercise a day, it cuts down symptoms appreciably and helps not only kids with ADHD, but neurotypical kids with their attention and cognition and emotion regulation. I mean, these are the preventive things that are going to help everybody and may reduce the risk of some of the more serious conditions that we're talking about. Let's talk about ADHD in girls. So ADHD in girls is it's one of these things I see all the time. In fact, I just gave feedback to the family yesterday that, uh, you know, it was it was something that I think was very helpful for them. But, you know, tr it's tr it's tricky in so many ways. You know, when you have these high functioning, I'll give you a, sort of a, a scenario, a high functioning individual, very bright, very verbal, probably physically attractive, uh, knows the rules and how to exchange with people and, and socially is appropriate. Um, nobody sees depression they're getting straight A's yeah and then they start cutting or they start doing other things like 
you know, substance abuse or other, you know, then the questions are what the we never saw this coming. Right. Yeah. And people look to, I mean, you know, when I was in when I was in inpatient, it was always, oh, cutting, they must have been abused. Right. right. <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, I mean, it, certainly on the rule out, you want to sort of keep this in mind. Oh. But you've got somebody who is suffering in silence and do, yep. and they don't even know what to call what's happening with themselves. It's happening, but they don't the mis the misattribution there, right? Yeah, is absolutely. To lots of other things. They're lazy or they're not smart enough, you know, so forth. If so, only she tried harder. How many report cards have I read that on? Right. So and I've you know sometimes I'm on the fence because it's like I can't get teacher or parent reports that reflect what I'm seeing on a battery of tests. Yep. You know, that's yep. that's very clear. So as a clinician, well, what do you tell somebody who's struggling with that? So I'm going to deconstruct a little bit because this has been a long-standing issue. Uh -huh. Number one, what did we used to call ADHD? Hyperkinesis or hyperactivity, or before that, minimal brain damage or minimal brain dysfunction. And everybody knew that boys are more active than girls and that your brain, you know, boys have boys' brains because in utero, they've got this XY chromosome that tells the body in the first few weeks in utero to start secreting androgens and testosterone, which makes you a boy, but it also slows your brain development. Girls at age two, three, and four are more linguistic and verbal and more empathic and more compliant than boys. So little wonder that boys truly have more autism spectrum and ADHD, uh, early onset conduct disorder, and some forms of learning disorder than girls. And there's two facets, fundamental facets to ADHD. One is the stereotype, the impulsive, hyperactive, fidgety, squirmy behavior. That's the boy thing. The other facet is inattention, disorganization, and poor executive functions, planning, correcting a mistake, working memory, holding bits of information in your mind. Girls are more prone to the inattentive, disorganized symptoms, which simply aren't as visible. You can suffer in silence in a classroom because you're not disrupting. And boys are more prone to the motoric overactivity uh, and doing risky things. So even the very rating scales that were used for decades to diagnose ADHD, the classic Connors 10-item hyperkinesis index, eight of the items deal with acts as if driven by a motor, et cetera, et cetera, only two on inattention. We know that Boys do outnumber girls, but it's not 10 or 20 to 1 the way we used to that. What I learned in grad school, it's about two and a half to 1. Autism, about 3 to 1. Girls with ADHD are more prone to have the exclusive inattention disorganization. And if they're trying hard, which a lot of girls do, and if there's families are helping them with compensatory mechanisms, at the cost of a lot of anxiety and perfectionism and struggle, They'll make it through grade school with the teacher saying, if only tried harder, but not visibly disruptive and apparently doing uh, better than expected. Then middle school hits Waterloo and then high school and puberty hits at the beginning of middle school. And now you've got five teachers or six rather than one. And those former coping strategies break down. And now you've got extracurriculars and now you've got social media keeping you up half the night, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in the DSM-5, it says ADHD, you've either got a bunch of inattention or a bunch of hyperactivity, impulsivity, or both. And they've got to cause impairment. And the symptoms have to have been clear and present before the age of 12. Well, that diagnoses boys. For girls, yeah. it's not until adolescence or college or in a uh, wonderful insert in my, my latest book, Straight Talk About ADHD in girls, Sarah Chung, a PhD from UC Berkeley, a postdoc now at UC San Francisco, writes a very pointed three-page essay on what if you don't get diagnosed with ADHD until you're in grad school? Hmm. Asian-American immigrant family, people didn't talk <laughs> about this yeah. very much. 
She always felt that she was coasting. And, and by college and pre-grad school and grad school, she was so ashamed of why she couldn't understand conversations and keep up and struggled so hard. Thoughts of suicide were on her mind a whole lot. Once the diagnosis came at, I believe, age 30 or 31, it was life-changing, the way it can be for a lot of women, because now there's an explanation, yeah. and now you can get organization skills, training, you can uh, join cognitive behavior therapy groups, you can get medication if it's needed, and so we, for a long time, thought that the kinds of ADHD more girls and boys have, it must have been anxiety, it must have been depression, could be ADHD, is a self-fulfilling prophecy, a vicious cycle. Nobody got girls in research studies until our group kind of took the lead uh, 25 years ago, followed them up over time. And now that we know a lot more of the basic science and clinical truths, it is a disservice to young girls, teen girls, and young women, and middle-aged women and beyond, not to consider ADHD as something that was hidden for a long time. You don't wake up one day at 40 and have ADHD. There's right. been talk about the adult onset. Well, if if you do, if you come into my office, I say, okay, well, when did you have a head injury or what drugs were you taking recently? But there may have been a pattern that's been masked and compensated for for year after year. Dr. Rosino, he's got about 700,000 followers on TikTok and all the, yep. the the kids go to his short form content to kind of figure out what they have. Yeah. Okay. The parents try not to have that happen, but yeah. Well, 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 right they now will. We're trying, they do it, but yeah. We're we're, tr we're trying to cross over and then YouTube, it's more of the parents, yeah. you know, they're ch checking it out. So the parents that are coming on and they, whatever, Google, the algorithm says, hey, ADHD, Dr. Hinshaw, Dr. Rosino, what advice could you give or what are the things that parents could look out for for their kids? When I say kids, you know, preschool, grade school, yeah. boys versus girls, girls or later, any advice that you could give them? Because they're going to have so many different people telling them what to do yeah. and really and really, it's not one thing that caused it. It's not going to be one thing that fixes it. But what is your advice? So in the book, Straight Talk about ADHD and girls, um, there's a couple of themes that really run through. It's a book written directly, you know, you, it's a second book written directly to parents. Um, and then the new book just started to write is uh, Straight Talk about ADHD and women. If your daughter truly has ADHD, you're going to need a good evaluation to get it by somebody in your community who knows that ADHD can and does exist in girls and is not likely to see uh, eight out of every 10 kids walking through their offices having ADHD because the symptoms of ADHD are the symptoms of being a young child, a preschooler. Yeah. You don't focus very long. You're impulsive. You tantrum. And yeah. especially for boys, it's easy to say, well, everybody in the world's got ADHD. For a girl, again, there are many girls who are with ADHD who are quite impulsive and active. Many of them, though, are the more exclusively inattentive variety of the condition. And there you're looking for a chronic inconsistency, a consistent inconsistency. Seems like if she's really motivated, she can do it. And then you, she goes to math class and falls apart. Or around somebody who really gets her, that kindergarten teacher was great, but the first grade teacher you know, kind of blamed her and things fell apart. You're looking for poor ability. ADHD is misnamed. Yeah. It's not an attention deficit disorder. It's a disorder in the ability to regulate attention regulate your executive functions in algebra versus history, in a relationship versus the workplace. And so hyper-focus, a lot of people have heard of that. These are people with ADHD who don't go to the bathroom or eat for eight hours because they're so totally engaged in a project. They, so you see, you hear the theme. It's misnamed. It's not the inability to pay attention. It's the problems in regulating focus, attention, allocation of your cognitive resources as the day goes on and shifts. And if there's a constant problem with that around many different situations, 
then you start to ask the local support group, self-help groups, who in my community is really good at diagnosing, knows it exists, doesn't diagnose it in you know, nine out of every 10 people who come in. And that good clinician is going to get a developmental history. Maybe there was abusive maltreatment and trauma. Doesn't mean you don't, there's not ADHD, but you've got to rule that out as well, as, as you pointed out a few minutes ago. There may be anxiety and depression, which came first. A very anxious kid can be quite inattentive, but it could be that an inattentive kid with ADHD develops anxiety because they're so afraid they'll fail. You don't know this by the snapshot, by the cross-section. You want to go back to get data from former teachers, parents to give that developmental history, the rating scales that parents and teachers can fill out that have good norms behind them, and sometimes the cognitive testing of achievement or neuropsychological functions can help you pinpoint. You don't do that in 15 minutes. So the big advice, A, get a really good assessment. B, talk to other families to get a sense, because if it's an only child, you may not know. And C, if your daughter does get a diagnosis, I recommend on page two of the book, Two themes from DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, which is a therapy for teens and adults with severe emotion dysregulation problems. And the two themes are radical acceptance and radical commitment. If I'm a 19-year-old and I've got really pr big problems in the borderline spectrum and I'm cutting and I'm, I'm just, I'm worried about um, relationship instability, I've got to accept that my behaviors and emotions, you know, they're they're kind of wild. I can't moan about it. If, if I can't gripe about it, but I need to accept that's how I am. But now commit to the kinds of DBT principles, the skills you learn, the way to regulate your emotions, meditate, have a good solid relationship with a therapist who calls you on stuff. If you're the parent of a girl with ADHD, she may not be the daughter you expected. Girls are still supposed to be in 2023, sugar and spice and everything nice and not problems and arguments at home over homework and uh, impulsive behavior. The family needs to have reward programs for younger kids, uh, get kids engaged in organizational skills. Medication may be a helpful adjunct. ADHD runs in families. A lot of parents when they get their kids assessed, realize that they may have ADHD too and have had it for 30 years and never quite known about it. So it's a family affair of accepting some of the differences as largely related to different genes different people have, but also committing to get the best supports and accommodation and schooling and therapy for that kid too. Part of the stigma thing is I, it's so rampant that as a parent, I'm, I, have, I have a child who has ADHD. It's a girl, has ADHD. She's nine. Uh, it's more the hyperactive, impulsive type. Yep, that uh, can happen in girls, right? Yep. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. What I, what I, what I discovered uh, was on a firsthand basis, my own resistance and denial around whether this was a real thing that yep. she had that she needed to right. uh, get services or she needed help with, and and I. And, and I found myself kind of like standing my own way or standing in my yeah. own way. And that's, you know, as a parent, you never want your child to have something. Right. Like disease or an illness or to be in pain. And, and, so, and maybe, and maybe especially one that might've been my fault as a parent. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Uh, there's that resistance. And then there's the added thing of if they have a mental health issue, yeah, what that means. Right. right. So, what you're talking about is is really, uh, in many ways, uh, these are parents that are f aware, right. and they have they're equipped and they have the resources to go and advocate. Right. So many parents, though, uh, may not have the inf information. That's right. They may not have sort of this this emotional understanding of you know okay this is what it means and this that's is what right. you do and and you know so that's partly why I'm writing a book too, <laughs> but right. it's, it's very much in line with helping parents to come to terms with some of their issues <laughs> that prevent them from getting their kids help. And That's sometimes right. it is like you say, it's, they have to sort of deal with the fact that they have ADHD yep. 
first. I mean, because it's like if I admit that it's a problem for them, then I have to also admit that like it's been a problem for me. And so we got to kind of deal with both at the same time. You get kind of a double resistance sometimes. Yeah. How do you approach parents that are struggling with this? What is is there something that you feel there's no there's no magic pill or bullet for getting recognition. Education's really important. Why are some people tall and some people short? Mainly because of genetic differences between people. Right. 90% of the differences in people's height is related to genes, not environments. Now, we're all four inches taller than our great-grandparents. That's not because our genes are mutated. It's because we got different diet and nutrition, different, you know, kind of environments we grow up in. So everybody's taller, but the individual differences are still controlled by genes. Yeah. ADHD is a parallel. We're all less attentive probably than before because of the million forms of social media and who can read a book anymore. And even if you watch two news on TV, I'm old enough to still remember doing that. Um, you know, the spots are nine seconds and then the camera shifts. And But individual differences in how focused and resistant to temptation and control in control of your impulses you are, it's 80% in our genes. So that means doing a little bit of math, a third to a half of biological parents of kids with ADHD probably have at least some part of the spectrum, if not the full themselves. And that can be this double resistance we're talking about. But the other thing is kids with ADHD have real strengths. I'm not of the opinion it's always a hidden gift. And if only we had open classrooms and if only every parent could tailor their whole life around their kid, ADHD would disappear. That's kind of mythical. We differ in height. We differ in how restrained we are. We differ in how um, impulsive we are acting without thinking, how well we can regulate our attention. And it's true that if those symptoms are really making life impairing, medication and behavioral treatments and school consultations is important. It's also important and essential to realize, what does your nine-year-old daughter do well? Hmm. Let's go back in evolutionary history. People say ADHD didn't exist until compulsory education, which is sort of true, that revealed reading disorder, ADHD. We didn't make all kids sit still before. But let's go back to a hunter-gatherer society. You know, there's still some on Earth, but, you know, formerly um, our ancestors are primarily hunter-gatherer clans. There was no compulsory education, and the tribe needed to survive. And maybe if I'm a little more impulsive and seeking the environment, I, I'm going to find that prey sooner than other people. But if I'm also that impulsive, maybe the three arrows I've got, I miss fire and we go hungry for a week extremes of any trait might yield impairment, even in a situation with ADHD at stake, uh, that doesn't mean that you have to sit in a one-room schoolhouse. So being really impulsive can mean you're spontaneous, or it can mean as an, an adult, you send that nasty email to the new boss who comes in, and you're on the bad side of the boss forevermore. Learning how to restrain impulses. Think before you act. Find ways of organizing your life. A lot of external cues, post-it notes, binder organizers for kids. I'm thinking of a colleague with two boys with ADHD. They're now grown up, but when they were younger, they found the first day's assignment for homework in June that had been passed out in the first week of September, nine months before. So there's things one can do to help channel it's, it's like bipolar disorder. Many people with manias, that's a hyper productive phase, right? You don't need to sleep and you, you're on a roll. Of course, it can lend and bleed over into psychosis and very severe symptoms. People with bipolar disorder think, I don't want to take lithium or any other mood stabilizer. I won't be creative and productive anymore. Right. If you have bipolar disorder and you're not treated, 40% of such people will attempt their lives and half of that 40% will complete a suicide. People who get evidence-based treatment say, I was sort of fooling myself. I thought I was super creative and productive, but you know, I never finished a product for 10 years. Now, maybe I don't stay up all night as much, but I'm actually more productive and creative. 
So with ADHD, one of the big findings from the B-GALS study, the Berkeley Girls with ADHD Longitudinal Study. We started this 25 years ago. These young women are in their 30s now, girls with ADHD back then, neurotypicals. Less likely than boys to get into substance abuse and to go to juvenile hall. Girls are more restrained on average. But a huge risk for teenage depression and anxiety and for teenage and early 20s, NSSI, non-suicidal self-injury, cutting, burning, self-mutilation, and attempted suicide. And here's maybe one of our, I think, most important findings. Girls with ADHD, 10 or 15 years later, we do these regular follow-ups, are at about three times the risk of a neurotypical girl for attempting their own life in a serious way and about two and a half times the risk for very serious cutting self-mutilation. If that same girl with ADHD had also experienced physical abuse, sexual abuse, or neglect during childhood, that doubled the risk. In other words, the genetic legacy of ADHD now superimposed with or superimposed on top of by maltreatment just as with bipolar disorder, which is another highly genetic condition, it's not genes or trauma, it's genes and trauma that can magnify their effects in in, in the most difficult cases. So we have to think holistically, we have to find strengths and ways of promoting them, and we also have to get serious about accepting, you know, my daughter isn't maybe the kid I thought I had brought into this world and I'm raising, But it's not rocket science to get the teacher on board with a reward system that you trade between home and school uh, and to get a really good doctor to say if a low or medium dose of medication might help. We can recover and thrive with many forms of mental illness, even though we don't have cures yet. But you have to get the assessment and get engaged in treatment before that'll happen. It seems that people, it seems that where we go to as we go to uh, it becomes a deterministic thing where it's like we get a diagnosis, so that means she's just going to commit suicide or engage in self-injurious behavior, right? And what we're saying is, no, you get a diagnosis, and that actually can help you prevent all of that stuff. That's right. Yeah. And and, right. and also, like, at an early – like, with new parents, because when you talk about abuse, stuff like ADHD or, neuro, you know, neurodiversity – those kids are more prone to be abused because of those misunderstanding those behaviors or misunderstanding not. the lack of attunement and mm-hmm. maybe uh, young parents or maybe parents who don't have great emotion regulation themselves yep. and poverty and instability and substance abuse plays a role. But um, yeah, it's, it's a multi-pronged problem. It's not an automatic, yes, you have florid ADHD. No, you're a neurotypical. There's people, it's same with hypertension. How do you know if I have high blood pressure or not? Well, we changed the standards in our country 20 years ago so that about 25% more people today qualify for being hypertensive so we can get earlier treatments going, which for mild hypertension is often diet and exercise. For the, the higher your systolic and diastolic readings, then we might have to get antihypertensive meds in to prolong your life. So again, not either or, both and thinking holistically about kids' development. I'm on TikTok, as, as Pete said, and I've had this, it's, it's a very, I don't, you know, I don't encourage other people to do it because it's got a lot of weird stuff. I mean, uh, people, what people say and stuff, but one of the one of the things that I'm trying to do is spread awareness and help people understand, yeah. right? And it seems to me, and I wonder what your impression is, but the, it seems to me that like, younger generations are so much more open to this stuff and um w- like want to talk about this stuff right yes. and i mean there's questions about whether mental illness is like a fad now everybody's traumatized right. or, or got adhd or whatever and you know there's there's issues to sort out there but it seems to me that it's very hopeful overall I agree with you. So one thing I do, I'm a scientific advisor to Glenn Close's organization, Bring Change to Mind, a nonprofit right here in in the Bay Area, San Francisco. 
devoted to helping young people, teens, high schoolers, college students, overcome stigma, whether they themselves have a condition themselves. And we've got 500 clubs now in high schools around the country. Awesome. They're not mental health groups. There's no health professionals in there. There's a teacher and his advisor. They're high touch. They have a regional support to help them sort of stay on the, the curriculum that those students decide for themselves. Lived experience, uh, getting speakers with experience in mental illness, meditation apps. The idea is, and I meet the high schoolers in these clubs. Hey, Dr. H, stigmas, that's what people with your hair color think. We don't have stigma. We're, we're more accepting. We're, and, and this is the positive side of social media. There's negative sides too, as we well know. A desire for authenticity, for understanding differences. But that doesn't mean that beyond a certain cutoff, people don't need help and treatment. This is, this is what helps you thrive with whatever condition you have. We haven't talked about diet. We haven't talked about school counselors, budgeting, oh, government. Can we bring you back some, on? Give, <laughs> sure. me some, give, me some, give me some reassurance here, Steve. Uh, was it was it hard for you to write your first book? This is my first book. It was. It's hard for me to write anything because I want it to be perfect. And I realize it's going to take a jillion drafts. <laughs> <laughs> That's number one. Number two, when I've written the more personal books, I edited a book about professionals and students in the field with disclosing their own mental health issues. Oh, I like that. What's, what's the name of that book? It's called Breaking the Silence, Oxford U Press, 2008. Love it. Okay. And then when I wrote Another Kind of Madness, 2017, I mean, I do a lot. You know, I'm kind of professor, advocate, author, whatever, speaker took me seven years to write because I needed to bring the real emotional experience of my growing up in this utter silence about my dad's horrendous, professionally ignored mental illness. Um, but that's why God invented word processing. <laughs> you don't have to rip up paper. You can delete Can't and imagine. You can rewrite and you find a section that really sings and then you write the interstitial stuff in between it. All I can say is keep at it and don't be afraid to have a, a book club or other people share your drafts with. You got to be thick skinned. Yeah. You think you're yeah. nailing it and other people say you, you didn't, didn't come across <laughs> like that to me. So That's what the editor's that's, for. That's what the editor, although many editors are so busy with so many manuscripts. Yeah. Uh, I was lucky in a couple of my books to have wonderful editors, but I know people who like uh, editors said, oh, well, yeah, it looks good. Fine. And that's, you, you need feedback. Thank you so much for this uh, first episode with you. Well, thanks for your questions. Thanks for being open to having me on. And I hope I didn't blab too much. No, you're fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. Dr. Hinshaw, thank you. Take care, guys. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.